The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good morning, Park Church. This morning's scripture reading is Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. God. Good morning. It's good to see you all. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at Park Church. Uh, Looking forward to getting into this passage with you all. Before I do, um, a couple of just quick observations. One, can we uh, thank, James is down the hallway, I think. Can we thank James just for coming back and uh, leading worship with us? Um, Yeah, it's just a gift to see him and to see, have him leading us again. We're so grateful. Also, uh, can we celebrate Anna Bronner's shirt that she was wearing this morning? Evan's uh, hanging with my homies. Uh, It's, uh, oh, come on, no thumbs down, no thumbs down. It's a big day. It's a big day for Kansas City folks like me. And, uh, and so, yeah, um, we're really grateful to be with you all. Uh, to worship Jesus is a gift. To do so today uh, is, is a gift. All around the world, uh, there are men and women, children, gathering together to worship Jesus. And uh, as we were praying this morning, just this sense of expectation and anticipation as we were praying together as a group of people. Um, we do a thing called Boiler Room Prayer before the service. You're all invited, 8.15 on Sundays. Um, but just this sense of like God's been doing things throughout history through his people as they gather together and as they scatter throughout their cities all around the world for 2,000 years. And, and just to know that God is with us, he's here, he's active and that he actually wants us to, to raise our expectations of what he wants, wants to accomplish uh, in us today, but also in us throughout our own journey with him. As you're we praying, I thought about this uh, quote from William Carey, uh, and he had said uh, a long time ago, he was a missionary, but he said, ask great things of God and attempt great things for God. And uh, this kind of like sense of God, God wants to do spectacular things, and sometimes it's our expectations, the kind of like shallow, slow expectations that kind of limit our experience of him. And so let's pray this morning um, that God would do more than we could imagine uh, through actually a really familiar but remarkable story. Let's pray. Jesus, you are Emmanuel. Um, You are God with us. So I pray even that reality, that reality alone would just stun us, would arrest our attention this morning. The God of the universe is with us. That you're not distant, you're not far away, you're not um, waiting for some kind of thing to happen before you come. You are with us. You're not reluctant to be with us. You're not disappointed to be with us. Um, You are hungry 
to be with us. And so would you allow us today, Holy Spirit, to taste and see more of the goodness of your nearness, of your love, of your faithfulness, of your power. Would you ignite our hearts in the glories of our salvation? Would you restore to us the joy of our salvation this morning? Would you help us to own the realities of our failures? Not try to minimize or justify or ignore. Would you help us enjoy just the hope that you bring into all of the brokenness in this world? And would you transform our hearts to be a people who live for your glory in your name in the city? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want you to think in your own mind about a time when you had failed. And I know that's like a hard question. For some of you, that feels very present and feels very deep. For others of you, uh, maybe not. Uh, maybe it's something that feels trivial that's on your mind. Maybe it's something that feels monumental. But I want you to think about a time uh, when you failed. As a kid, um, I grew up uh, in a home where, for me, and just this is my own way of kind of adapting to the sort of family dynamics around me, I kind of saw this really, it just felt really important for me to not fail. And I think I've learned a lot more about how kind of psychology helps us understand things about that and kind of family systems helps us understand things about that, about why it was so significant for me to try to succeed and achieve and do well at the things that kind of were before me. But those things which, which kind of create some positive characteristics, but also some really kind of broken characteristics in my own story and the way I approach life really kind of marked me as a child. And so most of my life, kind of as a kid, I felt like if I can do well at the things in front of me, then life tends to be more stable. My family tends to be happy with me. Kind of things feel a little bit better. And so I kind of was a pretty driven kid in ways that were sometimes exhausting. I felt shame in different areas of my life that I would tuck away where I'd feel the kind of like encroaching kind of sense of Man, I don't know if I'm doing well enough in these areas. And it really, it really marked me. Uh, it wasn't until, though, college where I felt like this incredible experience of failure. It was actually at the end of my freshman year, I played soccer in college. And at the end of my freshman year, just a group of friends and I made some bad decisions and we got suspended uh, at the end of our, our freshman year. And so that meant for me for the next year, for the first half of the soccer season, uh, I wasn't going to be able to play. And I felt just like I let my teammates down, right? Like the school administrators are calling my parents. Uh, we're getting kind of counselors involved in these situations. And I'm like, I've let my parents down. I've let my teammates down. I've let my coaches down. Uh, I love, like, my pastor found out about it. You know, I've let my pastor down. Like, people that had invested in me and cared for me. And it just felt like now I have this, like, sense of, like, this public sense of failure, which was what I had spent most of my life kind of avoiding at all costs. Like this is my worst case scenario. Um, this sense of public um, kind of significant failure that had, that had consequences that didn't go away in a day, right? It was, you know, it was gonna be months of like me sitting on the sideline and why aren't you playing? And you know, what happened? Why aren't you going in there? And just like this sense of like this revisitation of my failure. And it was really hard for me. And at the same time, what I experienced in that time was one of the most powerful experiences of my life, which was a, a kind of faithful love from a number of people who cared for me, who forgave me, who understood me, who were there kind of giving me a second chance, whether it was my coaches and my teammates or my parents or my pastor, just a group of people that loved me in the place of that failure. And it was actually one of the most powerful experiences of human grace I had experienced up to that point. Because up to that point, I kind of felt like, you know, hey, things are going okay, but I've worked hard for things to go okay. And here I've, now I feel like I've totally failed 
and people still love me, which is just not what I would have expected. It wasn't my worldview. My worldview and the way kind of just I approached life was if I fail, it will be a, a massive experience of rejection. And it was really kind of the beginning of a series of failures in my life. And I would say like for the past, you know, 15 years, it's been this experience of becoming a friend with my own sense of failure, like actually learning to embrace it, learning to receive it, learning to experience failure in marriage and failure as a father and failure as a coworker and failure as a leader and failure in my relationship with God and learning more and more of the importance of embracing and owning the realities of my failure and just in a, kind of the words of a counselor, falling in love with that reality and saying, this is real. I've dropped the ball. I haven't achieved the things I want to. And experiencing grace and love in that place is one of the most transforming experiences a human being can have. And it's really what the gospel is all about. Um, the gospel at its very core is about God meeting us in the place of our failure as human beings. And yet for many of us, for, for much of us in our society, we live in a merit-based kind of understanding of life that if we can achieve, if we can accomplish, if we can accumulate, if we can win, if we can succeed at whatever your vision of life is, then, then we have this sense of like self-fulfillment and the sense of satisfaction. But that sort of pressure is crushing, and then the failures to succeed in those things are crushing, and so most human beings live in this tension where we're failing to be what we feel like we ought to be, which is actually true. It's actually true. It's actually the kind of foundation of the gospel in a very real sense is our willingness to come to the grips with the fact that we have failed. And that's a hard thing to say in sort of a hyper self-esteem, self-help world that we can do anything we set our minds to. We got this. We can do this. We can accomplish this, right? Like anytime things are going hard, it's like we got this. We can get through this. And the foundation of the gospel is actually saying, no, I, I don't have this. I need help. And in fact, it is the willingness to embrace this experience of desperation, the actual need for a savior that leads us to the joy and the glory of being the children of God, the family of God, and experiencing the love of our Savior. And that's what this passage, which is so familiar, is all about. I find when I am resistant to the realities of failure in my life, Jesus becomes very small. Very small, because I don't need a Savior. I'm not desperate for him. I'm not desperate for salvation. So what he's done for me means less and less. But whenever I get honest and when I own the realities of my failure then the cross, the mercy of God, the love of God, and the salvation that Jesus brings feels like the, the best and most powerful and most significant news in the world. And that's what we're praying for this morning is that this story would strike you as glorious, life-giving, freedom-giving, and powerfully transforming news in the world. And so what I want to do this morning is actually just unpack uh, just a couple different aspects. We're going to look at the story itself and ask a question about the story. And look at the story that leads up to this moment, ask a question about the story, and then we're going to pack a handful of implications about the name of Jesus that he's given in this story, which is sort of like the culmination, and it kind of sets the tone for the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. So we're going to ask a question about the story, and then we're going to look at this name that he has given and the implications for our life, and I think they ought to be worldview-changing and powerful for us. And so um, if you close your Bible, keep it back open. I want you to open it back up. We're going to look at verse 18. I'm going to walk through this story, make some observations, and I want to ask a question about it for you. I'm going to start off verse 18. This is the narrative section of Matthew, starting right here. It's the first time Matthew's passed the genealogies. Thank God. Now he's into like the narrative, which is exciting. Um, so here's what he says. He says, "Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way: when his, Mary, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together." 
So she's betrothed to Joseph. This is before they had come together. We're not saying before they had come together. This is before they had sexual intercourse. They have not yet come together. They are betrothed, which is like engagement, but it's a legal, it's like a legal entry into engagement. So there's a contractual um, kind of experience there. Dowries are paid. Bride prices are paid. Kind of stipulations are set up. They are now in a relationship that has real stipulations, real bindings. And then and then they wait roughly a year while the groom goes away to prepare the home for the bride in this betrothal, betrothal period. So it's the way that sort of pre-marriage kind of experience took place in that culture. So the groom goes away. Joseph, in this case, goes away. He's preparing a home for Mary. They're not even allowed to be alone together during this one-year betrothal period. Um, Mary's waiting. She's preparing herself. And in this time, anticipation grows and the sort of experience of this waiting for the marriage ceremony where they enter into covenant and they consummate the marriage through sexual relationship comes together and that sort of experience is the kind of baseline experience of the Jewish people. It's what they expected. And to breach that experience through anything, whether they came together to have sex before they were married or perhaps adultery and that kind of thing was considered adultery, is considered unfaithfulness. So that's the sort of setup that's happening. If you imagine Mary, she's roughly maybe 14 or 15 years old, which is a normal age to get married in that culture. Uh, This is an arranged marriage, uh, likely. So parents are very involved in setting this up and it's a it's a moment of social significance, familial significance, significance of land, and all these things that are tied to it. And you have this 15-year-old girl in the middle of that that's preparing herself. And you just imagine the emotions, imagine the sort of family emotions that have all leaned into this moment. I have a, a daughter, and the concept of marriage for my daughter destroys my brain. Like, it, it is like, it's, I can't go there. I listened to that song at the Grammys the other day uh, about the first man. I don't know if you guys watched that, but watched this song uh, called The First Man. And I just like was devastated for like a whole day uh, talking about a daughter's love for her father being the first man who really loved her. I'm like, no, only man, only man, <laughs> whoever, nobody else, nobody else, um, never. Um, so I had a talk with her about how marriage is bad and should never enter into it. And, <laughs> no. Um, so, so we, you know, we have this kind of this expectation. This, this girl has this expectation. And in the middle of this, the story takes a ridiculous turn that I think for us, we've become so familiar with that you can be desensitized to the power of it. So here's what it says. It says, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We're like, right, right, right. You know, what's next? We're like, hold on. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. It's crazy. That's never happened before, never happened after, never happened in the history of the world. She was found to be with child. Now, the, the idea of she was found is an interesting phrase because it brings you into like the actual narrative experience, right? The actual human experience. It means Joseph realized through some setting that she was pregnant. So there's a couple of ways that could have happened. One is he could have noticed the baby bump, which you're not allowed to ask until like month eight, right? You're not like, that's just like basic rule for humanity. You're not allowed to ask like, hey, notice, maybe, you know, like that. Uh, you know, you just wait, wait until it's like crystal clear. Rule of thumb is just don't ask, you know, just don't, don't ask. But maybe he notices the baby bump and, and the question comes up. She was found to be 
with child. She was found to be pregnant. Or perhaps because the Holy Spirit had actually sent an angel, an angel had come and appeared to Mary. Prior to this moment, perhaps Mary came to Joseph and shared with Joseph what had happened. Um, and again, just imagine that scenario. So Joseph, I have some crazy news. It's like, you, you want to sit down for this? I'm pregnant. And in that society, that would have meant massive, massive things. It would have meant an almost certain divorce in that situation to marry a person who had had sexual relationships with somebody else was like, nobody would have done that. It would have meant almost certain divorce. According to Old Testament law in Deuteronomy, it meant Mary would be actually liable to be stoned to death in Old Testament law. Those practices had kind of like gone by the wayside at this point in sort of the history of Judaism. But divorce and public shaming were like, totally like in the deck for this family, but not just for Mary. It would have been a bad stain on Joseph's family, a really hard scenario. And so before, when Joseph's mind's spinning, what happened? Mary was this amazing young girl. He trusted her. He trusted her family, all these things, just like an incredibly crazy experience. And uh, but before she goes too far, before he goes too far, she says, I, I need you to know that I, I haven't had sex with anyone. I'm still a, I'm still a virgin. And Joseph very reasonably doesn't believe that, um, <laughs> which you wouldn't either, right? Because it's never happened. It's never happened. It had never happened before. It's never happened since. That's not how it happened. Some people are like, well, you know, um, in that day and age, 2,000 years ago, they didn't have like the same science. They're like, they understood where babies came from. <laughs> it's, not like, it's not like the Jewish people thought storks brought in babies and like, I know normally he waits till the storks wait till we're together in marriage before they bring the baby. But this one, like it wasn't like that. They understood. They weren't stupid. They weren't stupid. They understood, which is why Joseph is going to resolve to divorce her quietly. What's interesting is, you know, you kind of have that moment, like all of us learn in kind of like junior high or high school health class, like the only 100% effective way to like kind of keep away an unintended pregnancy is abstinence. And Mary would be like, uh, not a hundred percent, you know, like, uh, I get it. It's high, but I just want to kind of challenge that claim. Um, challenge it a little bit, right? Like, uh, but it's, it's a crazy story. It's a crazy story. It's not the way things work, which is part of the power of it. And Joseph, um, obviously is confused, but he was confused, uh, for good reasons. And he was operating in that moment, with inadequate information. It says he kind of takes the, the legal recourse, the just recourse um, to divorce her, but he's, he's going to do it quietly, which just shows his own character. He didn't need to do that. He's protecting her from social shame and stigma. And because of his love for her and his respect for her, um, he was going to do this quietly. He didn't want to do anything unnecessary that would have hurt her unnecessarily. Um, but divorcing her was the kind of, it was even a righteous recourse in this situation, but he, again, he was operating with inadequate information. So the Holy Spirit, again, uh, sends another angelic messenger, and this is what it says in verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Um, an angel of the Lord comes to Joseph, and he says, Joseph, you don't need to be afraid. I get that you're confused. I get that your mind has been in a crazy space. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be anxious. God is on the move. God is on the move. What's conceived in Mary was a righteous thing, and it's from the Holy Spirit. 
That the Holy Spirit, just as the Holy Spirit hovers over the waters of creation to create life, so the Holy Spirit has revisited humanity again to bring new life. To bring new life from God. A whole work of new creation is beginning. And it's beginning inside the womb of your betrothed wife. That inside of her, God is, is launching the new creation project through which all things will be made new. And this news, through this angelic messenger, is met by Joseph with faith. Joseph believed the news. And it brings us into this concept, this doctrine that we call the divine conception, uh, which is something that has been held by Christianity throughout history, right? It's a, it's a part of the Apostles' Creed, right? He was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Where what we say about Jesus is that he wasn't conceived through human sexual activity. He was actually conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He is fully God and fully man. And he enters into this world as the God-man to bring a whole work of new creation. And so it brings us to a really important question that was going to plague the kind of family structures and the society and the neighbors and the cities around and all of the kind of early history. What was going to plague people is, was Jesus really the Son of God? Is this story true? There was controversy around the story from day one. Controversy in Joseph's heart. Does he believe the story? Does he believe the angel? Does he believe this? And Joseph chose to believe this story. Thousands of others, hundreds of thousands of others, millions of others, even today, millions of people around the world have chosen to believe this story. But some people don't. Um, even some people who profess to kind of appreciate certain things about Jesus take this story and they say, that's, that's impossible. That's not the way things work. To which we say, for sure, totally agree with you. It's not the way things work. But is it possible that what God's doing in the world and what God did in this story, in this moment, is doing something miraculous and powerful, much like the first work of creation, to bring creation and existence out of nothing, that he's doing it again to bring something out of nothing and to bring a human into this world that will be his son, that will experience the fullness of his power, a son that was with him eternally, that has now taken on human flesh to bring to the world hope and salvation. Is it possible? And you have to reckon with this question. And I think it's a, it's a really kind of like watershed question for your life. Either it's true. Either it's true and Jesus is the Son of God. In which case, this is a worldview shattering, shaping reality. It changes the game for everything. It changes the game on what you think the problem in the world is. It changes the game on what you think the solution for the world is. What the center of history is. What the culmination of history is. It changes everything. If it's true. Or it's not true. And if it's not true, it means that the Christianity itself is founded on lies. And so it's hard to kind of imagine a place where we're like, hey, we're going to take the teachings of Jesus. We're going to take the teachings of the New Testament. We're going to take some good stuff and some moral, like kind of like helpful stuff. We're going to take that out, extract it from the Bible and be super thankful for that stuff, but deny stories like this. Because Jesus, all throughout his whole story, was claiming to be the Son of God. The story is founded on the fact that he wasn't just a guy that was born from Joseph and from Mary and did a good job and was kind of better than the rest around him. He had come from God. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He was fully God and fully man. His claims of, of deity and the claims that are even made in this passage of his deity are, are claims that, that you have to reckon with. And he made them and he held them and all of his earlier fo earliest followers held them. And so for us to kind of say, I, I don't know, I'm not sure, um, I'm going to take like some aspects of that and, and I'm going to kind of embrace them, but I'm not going to kind of account for the deity of Christ or the virgin conception. And so we kind of get to this place and I think one of the most powerful quotes that kind of brings you to the heart of this question is, is by C.S. Lewis. We've quoted it often and I think it's just compelling. 
And here's what Lewis says. He says, a man who is merely a man, in other words, a man who is born of Joseph and Mary, not conceived by the Holy Spirit, and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, which I just love that he uses poached egg. It's like, maybe it's what he had for breakfast. You know, I don't know. Um, A man who says he's a poached egg or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool you can, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. This story forces you to deal with a question. You have to. He's the son of God. And if he's the son of God, he's the Lord of the universe. He's the Lord, and it means his story about the world, the the purpose of his life, the promises of the future. Either these things are real or they're not. And so to sort of like ride the fence of Christianity and take the good stuff and push out the bad, it's like Jesus has not left that option open for you. Matthew, at the very beginning of his gospel, has not left that option open for you. He's the son of God or the whole thing's a sham. Or the whole thing's a sham. It's interesting to me to watch the kind of in this, in this secular age and the way I think about secular, you think about Charles Taylor who wrote a book called Secular Age, is, is in this age, we as a human society, especially a Western human society, are trying to construct meaning and purpose without reference to the transcendent and without reference to the kind of like eternal. So we're trying to make sense of life. Maybe there's something transcendent above us out there and maybe there's something eternal. Maybe there's life after the death, uh, life after death. But those realities, as far as I'm trying to construct meaning and significance and value and satisfaction, like that might be there, but they're not relevant to my daily experience and my attempt to kind of make something of my life and do something positive with my life. And so as a human society, we're kind of, we're kind of on that track, trying to construct life through the kind of the, the material and the temporal, the immediate. And most of us are affected by that. Now that's sort of the, the secular age that we're living in. What's interesting to me is, and Jamie Smith talks about this, we're, we're simultaneously haunted by the transcendent. We're haunted by the eternal. There's just something in us that longs for it. And, and I know this is a, a delicate thing. I was watching the Lakers game on Friday night. I don't know if many of you watched this. They did a kind of a half an hour tribute to Kobe Bryant and Gigi and all the other seven who passed away in the tragic accident last Sunday. And it was, a, it was a powerful tribute. And you think about like the 19,000 people in the Staples Center and the millions watching on TV. And it's this kind of experience. And then all of a sudden, Usher's standing there in the middle of a stage singing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. He's singing about the grace of God. And then after he sings the first two verses of Amazing Grace, he just starts like praying over, Lord, we need you. We need your grace. Everybody in here needs your grace. People are hurting. We need you. We need you. Pour out your grace on these families and on these hurting and grieving people. And he's just praying over this. 19,000 present, millions tuning in. In the midst of the secular age, there's something in us when tragedy strikes and our frailty as human beings and the brokenness of the world and the depth of the pain that we experience is just unavoidable, that our hearts just like erupt with a a longing for God. We're haunted by these things, even as we try to kind of organize our life without reference to him, when it all collapses, when we realize we need someone outside of ourselves to save us from this 
inevitable pain and loss and grief that so permeates our society. And I just like sit there and I watch this and think about the night, like the Lakers organization decided that they're going to play that song right then there in front of those 19,000 and millions tuning in. And it just says something about the human soul and the longing in the human soul. And so the question that you have to ask is, are you wanting to construct meaning and life and significance without reference to the presence of God? Or will you embrace that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? And if so, it's a worldview changing reality for you in all of the best ways. In all of the best ways. But I wanted to leave, kind of start with that question. Do you believe it? Your answer might be, I'm not sure right now. But it's something you're going to have to reckon with. It's something you have to reckon with. Um, Because if it's true, it has massive implications. And so I want to kind of draw attention to a few of the implications that are kind of highlighted just by his name in this passage. And this is a stunning, stunning story. Look at verse 21. Here's what the angel says to Joseph. She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua which means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. You're going to call his name Yahweh saves because he will save his people from their sins. You're going to call his name Yahweh saves because he's going to save his people from their sins. When Jesus comes into the world, the sort of like defining moment around his birth, the first thing that's going to be spoken over him is your name is Jesus. It's kind of showing the purpose of his life. And the purpose of his life is not mere moral teacher. The purpose of his life is not intriguing kind of like scholar. It's not kind of moral example. The purpose of his life is savior. It is to save the world from our sins. Now, when it says from our sins, it would have been like a really hard thing for the first audience to read. They wanted salvation. They wanted salvation from Roman oppression. They were being occupied by Rome. They had been occupied by kind of of world powers one after another, whether it's Babylon or Persia or Greek or Rome. They had experienced this kind of occupation being kind of like belittled and pushed down as a society. And they were longing for the Messiah to come and save them from Roman oppression, to save them from circumstantial pain, to save them from the difficulty and the tyranny of these governments around them. And so we want a savior. We want something to, deli- to deliver us. We need Yahweh to come and deliver us from this and, and restore our prosperity as a people. And it says, he will save his people from their sins. Now, I think it's powerful for us at just a worldview level for us. Like we feel the brokenness in the world. You look at society around you. You look at the, the, the systemic injustices. You look at political division. You look at kind of world poverty and hunger and water crises. You look at refugee crises. You look at our own city and the divisions that exist in our city. You look at your home and you think about the divisions in your home and estranged relationships. And like the brokenness is out there. And we feel this like... First, this attempt to save ourselves, and this says you don't have to save yourself. He will save you. But the issue is we kind of locate, we locate the problem in the circumstances, and this says the problem lies underneath the circumstances. The circumstances themselves are legitimate. There are legitimate systemic injustices in the world that require a social activism. There's legitimate pain in your family of origins that would warrant counseling. There's legitimate chemical and physical and medical brokenness. There's, there's economic tensions at a macro level and a micro level that are hurting people and that are making life challenging. And those are real and you should pay attention and you should care and you should be active in the world as a human being. But to spend all of our time thinking about if we can kind of like reorder all of these 
kind of surface issues, which some of which are, are deep, and some of which are generation long, and some, some of which are like huge things to be tackled by humanity. But if we spend all of our time there and never get under the, like the root problem of humanity's rebellion against God, then we've missed the point and we will never find the joy that our hearts are longing for. So like what, what is sin? Um, at, at the very basic level, sin is failure. Uh, which is why I start there. The word sin is used not just in kind of like human to divine relationships. It's a word that was used both in the Old Testament and in kind of like contemporary Greek world to talk about failure, to talk about missing and failing and falling short of something you were supposed to do or something you were trying to do. You have this goal and you failed to do it. You have this objective and you failed to accomplish it. You have this thing that you were supposed to be and you failed to be it. And so it's used in a very broad sense. And so what's, what's Matthew talking about or this angel talking about when he talks about sin. He's talking about the failure to be truly human. And really the failure to be what human beings were designed to be. That we were designed to walk with God, to trust in his word, to worship him for who he is, and to reflect his glory as his images in the world. So human beings were designed to be. It's what you're designed to be. As somebody that knows God, you trust his word, you trust his wisdom for life, you trust his power and your need for his power, you worship him and you love him with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And in that love and being loved by him and walking in his presence, you reflect his image or you bear his image. That's the human vocation. It's the human mission. Through all the things he's called you to do in work and in family and in neighborhoods and in cities, to like be active, loving other people, sacrificing your own interests for the good of others. And we all, as human beings, from day one, turn from that mission. Instead of laying down our lives for the good of others, instead of trusting God and worshiping him, we distrusted him. We put ourselves on the throne. And in that place, separated from his presence, we start approaching humanity, not to lay down our lives for the good of others, but to actually use and manipulate others for the good of ourselves. Our hearts are bent in on themselves, to use the language of old theologians. Our hearts are bent in on themselves. And no matter how much we do to kind of try to eradicate political divisions and try to kind of get mediation, but you're not listening to them and you're not listening to them and you guys are like, you know, like, just like watch stuff and like destroys your head again, just like watching this kind of insane dialogue. That's like both, but just like, I'm, I'm like, I'm like declaring myself and my independence here in this whole system that we live in. Um, but it's just crazy. And you're like, well, if we can just help, it's like, no. No, like that won't fix the problem. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try and we shouldn't have mediation. We shouldn't care about politics. Fight hard on the left. If you're on the left, fight hard on the left to be an an understanding person that's wise and fighting for good, valuable things. If you're on the right, fight hard to be an understanding person that's wise and fighting for right things and like try to value other human beings. It's all good, right? Like it's good to go to counseling and to work on things. It's good to like care about the world around you. It's good to like take care of family and care about, it's good. Those are good things. But this story forces us to get honest with the fact that our hearts are bent in on themselves. And no matter how much work we do, we can't rebuild the Garden of Eden. We can't rebuild paradise. We can't rebuild this flourishing kingdom without the king. And we've turned from him. And that means we need to be saved from our rebellion. It means we, we need to be saved from our failure as human beings, whether that's failure in your marriage. And I, and I think this stuff's real. Like you feel like, man, I've failed in my marriage or my marriage has totally failed. It's fallen apart. I feel like I've failed as a father. The way I'm supposed to like reflect God to my kids and there are times where I've been harsh and impatient and frustrated and I've said belittling things to my kids that I just like would have wished, I'd, I wish I could like erase. I just wish I could erase 
and I can't. Like they'll go to counseling because of me someday, right? Like they'll have to work through those things. I've, I've failed as a father. I failed as a coworker, right? I failed as a, as a neighbor. I've failed as, as a son and as a friend. And like my heart is like bent. I need a savior. And so do you. So one of the most powerful implications of this is that because Jesus has come, you can actually own your failure. You can own it. You don't have to justify it. You don't have to defend it. You don't have to minimize it. You don't have to ignore it. You don't have to tuck it away. You don't have to atone for it by like doing enough right. Like that kind of stuff is crushing to think like I have to make up for this. Like no, you, you don't. You have to say I need a savior from outside of myself. I need a savior. Another implication is you don't have to keep striving. You can stop striving. So much of our striving in this world is this attempt to build the kingdom of God without the king. And so the whole kind of concept of life and this worldview that the birth of Jesus forces us to reckon with is we've rejected the king, we've rejected his kingdom, and we're trying to build a kingdom in our own strength. And we talk about this over and over and over, but we're striving and striving and striving to continue to build our life. And you don't have to because what we're trying to do is build a kingdom on our own, which we're also failing to do, like the human project is not like working to build paradise. Just pay attention to the world. It's not working. Real advancements, real significant things have happened, good things have happened. Won't build the kingdom without the king. We don't have to. He's come to save us, to actually bring us back into his kingdom. You don't have to keep striving and spinning your wheels thinking that you need to create this phenomenal life for you and for your children. You've got to create a paradise, an oasis, an Eden for yourself, for your family, for your children, the next generation. It's like, that's not your job. In fact, it might be way better for your kids to be honest about your need for a savior than to try to be the savior that you think they need. Instead of thinking like, I got to create Eden for you. How about we just admit, man, we're broken. We need Jesus and he's the savior our hearts long for. You you can stop your striving. But it's not just forgiveness for our failure. It's not just the idea that we can stop striving. The, the text goes way deeper, and I think it's stunning what it says. And I want you to see this in the passage. It says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Yahweh saves. Yehoshua. Yahweh saves. For he will save his people from their sins. Call his name Joshua. Call his name Jesus. Call his name Yeshua. Yahweh saves. Because he will save his people from their sins. Yahweh saves. He will. Is Yahweh saving? Or is, or is this baby saving? We're going to call him Yahweh saves, which is a name that was given to Joshua. And it was actually a common name in, in kind of Jewish religion. Not because Yahweh is about to come save his people, but because he will save his people. Call him Yahweh saves because the baby's going to save. He's saying Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. Jesus is the Lord God Almighty. Jesus is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Jesus is the God who uh, kind of created the world by the word of his power, upholds it by the word of, word of his power, and continues to govern it towards his desired end. Jesus is Lord. And Matthew is saying he is Yahweh. Which is why he can say the next phrase. And this is all to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. You shall call his name 
Emmanuel, which being translated as God with us, which I kind of like is confusing. It's like, call him Jesus, and that'll fulfill what the prophet said when he said to call him Emmanuel. You're like, wouldn't calling him Emmanuel fulfill what the prophet said when he said to call him Emmanuel? Like, how does calling him Jesus fulfill what the prophet said when he said call him Emmanuel? Because he is God with us. He is Yahweh in the flesh. He's with us, which another implication of that is that Jesus' death for our sins, his saving us from our sins, isn't just giving us forgiveness from our past guilt. It's not just giving us a ticket to some future kind of like paradise, you know, kind of like experience. He's actually kind of coming to be God with us. He's coming to establish his presence amongst us. And this is the theme that's going to carry all the way through Matthew. That the good news of the gospel is not merely forgiveness of sins and a ticket to heaven. The good news of the gospel is God saying, I want to be with you. I want to bring you back into relationship with me. I want you to walk with me and talk to me and engage with me. I want to restore you to your original design as a human being. To be attentive to my presence, to trust my wisdom, to walk in my power, to listen to my voice, and to be with me. And so when Jesus ascends up to heaven right before he does, he says, I'm going to be with you all the time. And as Christians, we kind of like truncate the gospel. We sever it and we say, all right, forgiveness for sins. So now I don't have to pay the penalty for my sins anymore. Totally true, powerful, real. I get to go to heaven when I die and be with God. What you mean by heaven is an interesting concept that we'll talk more about throughout this whole gospel. But like these, totally true. Love it, good. And then I keep operating here as if God's not with me. As if the whole purpose of the gospel isn't for God to reconcile humanity to himself. It's an implication. If Jesus is the Son of God, it means God wants to be with you. He's not resistant. He's not reluctant. He's not disappointed. He's not frustrated. In the midst of our failure, he's pursued you. When you feel like you've blown it in your marriage, you've blown it at work, you had a public failure that you feel like has stained you, God is not disappointed. He's not holding back. He's like, I want to be with you. I want to walk with you. I want to remind you that I love you every day. I want to help you stop striving And rest in my presence. I want you to know that the stains that you feel from the decisions you've made and the regrets that you have from the way you interacted in these situations, they don't define you in my eyes. I love you. I'm with you. I'm right here. Can you imagine to go home tonight and to know, man, the God of the universe is with me and he loves me? Just that freedom is stunning. This is what God has come to do. To help us own our failures to help us feel freedom from our striving, to help us enjoy his presence, but also to give us hope. Give us hope. Um, One one of the things that's powerful about this whole story is that the first word in the story of this section, it says, now the birth of Jesus Christ happened like this. It says the Genesis, we talked about this last week, it's the same word that shows up in verse one of the whole book of Matthew. Now, this is the genealogy, the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Now, Matthew's saying, now here's how the Genesis, the same word, here's how the Genesis began. And Matthew's trying to say, Jesus isn't just coming for you individually. He's a part of this really, really long story that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. That when Jesus comes, he's not just rescuing us from our failure individually. He's not just securing for us the presence of God as individual persons. He's not just securing for us a future. He's actually come to make the whole thing right again. The whole thing. All of it, all the systemic stuff, all the broken stuff, all the stuff in your heart and in your family and in your past, all the things that are going to happen over the next years, all of it, the birth of Jesus is God saying, the world is mine and I've come to make it all right. I've come to restore it all. I've I've come to make it all new, which allows us as followers of Jesus to have intense hope 
like incredible hope in the world. When you feel like these devastating viruses sweeping through countries, when you're feeling kind of, again, political divisions and different perspectives on life and social dynamics, when you're feeling the brokenness around you and in your family and in your workplace, when you feel toxic work environments and corrupt leadership, and you feel a brokenness in your own leadership, and all these things that plague us, like the birth of Jesus says there's hope. God's in the business of doing a whole new creation work, making all things new. And that ought to make us the most joyful, hopeful, warm-hearted, kind, honest about brokenness, not Pollyannish, like fake smile, but honest about the pain, honest about the failures, honest about the failures that we've contributed to the world as individuals and as societies. Own it all, but do it with joy and hope because Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who's come to save us from our sins, to reconcile us to God, and to make all things new. Let's pray together. I want to encourage you just uh, as we pray to not think about this as wind down time, but, but God's speaking right now. Like God, God wants to speak to you. Um, that Jesus said, I'm with you. I'll always be with you. And he's with you right now. And so a question to ask is, what, what is the Holy Spirit speaking to you? Is there an area of Failure that has been devastating. It's been so hard to face. That Jesus wants to remind you. That he sees you. He loves you. He forgives you. He came to save you. He came to be with you. Maybe there's something in your life that you've been trying to hide um, or minimize, or ignore. Maybe even just the attempt to ignore certain areas of pain in life has, has led you to all sorts of different kind of practices and habits um, that you know are just like creating more pain and exacerbating the issue. Um, Jesus came to intervene in those moments. to show you his love, he's paying attention, he's paying attention to you, he's paying attention to your story. He knows all the backstory behind it, he knows all the situational things and the emotional things, he knows all of it. He's the wonderful counselor who doesn't just empathize with you in the pain, but enters into it, has succumbed to the pain himself and did so to bring healing and love and restoration and so I just want to give you just a moment of silence just to respond to Jesus right now. Even just to use the kind of Bible word of to confess, which just means to agree with God about what's real, to just like tell him these things are real and I need you. And so I want to encourage you to take a moment and just respond to him.
Jesus, would you, all around this room, give us faith um, to believe that you are who you said you were and that these words that we read, these stories that we're familiar with are the most beautiful news, liberating news, cleansing, refreshing, renewing truths in the world. And so I pray all around this room that you would give hope, that you would secure people in your love, that you would remind people of your continued commitment to them. Just think of Paul saying, if God didn't withhold his own son from us, how would he not with him graciously give us all things? God is for you. He's not against you. God is for you. So Jesus, lift up in our hearts worship, joy, freedom, and hope as we consider what you've done for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.